Well, it is a great day, and we're going to transition now and look at the birth of Christ. And today we're getting into the birth specifically of Christ. And if you've been with us a little while here, we're venturing through the Gospel of Luke. We've made it to chapter 2. And as we come into chapter 2, we have transitioned away from the birth of John. So the narratives bounce back and forth, telling us about the birth of John, who eventually gets called John the Baptist because he's a prophet and he's out and he's baptizing people. We call him John the Baptist. His mom didn't name him John the Baptist. That would be an unusual name, even by biblical accounts and standards. But he comes to be known as John the Baptist because he's the baptizer, as opposed to John, often called John the Evangelist, who's the writer of the Gospel of John. So John the Baptist and John the Evangelist. They're both important characters, but don't confuse them. They're very, very different people and play different roles in the early establishment of the kingdom and of the church itself uh, later on as John would continue to write. So we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2, and we are going to read about the birth of Christ. And we've titled this today, An Extraordinarily Ordinary Birth. And what I want to draw your attention to throughout this whole narrative is that the extraordinary part of the birth of Christ is that it's not extraordinary, It's pretty amazing, the reality and just the simplicity of the birth of Christ. And I think Luke is really trying to draw our attention to that reality. You moms out there in particular can attest to the beauty and the wonder of childbirth. It's an amazing thing. We have a few around here that are about to enter that world, maybe for the first time and maybe again. It is an amazing reality, childbirth is I was teaching a class not that long ago, a seminary class, and we were teaching on wisdom literature, and one of the topics that we got into was uh, preaching, preaching from wisdom literature. And I was just talking about preaching and preparation in general, and I made the comment, I said, you know, putting together sermon, I said, it's just sort of like giving birth. There's this whole long process that you go through to put together a sermon, and this lady in the class, she just looks straight at me, she goes, no, it's not. I said, okay, I accept that rebuke. You don't argue with a lady when she says that to you in class. All right, fine. What I was just trying to say is that it doesn't just happen, all right? Sorry, my bad. Birth is an amazing thing, though. It's amazing, but yet it's incredibly common, right? (laughs) You know, around 8 billion, I hear, people on the planet right now, and everybody's been through birth, that's how you got here. And so it's amazing and it's spectacular, but it's very normal at the same time. And so that's what we see really in the birth of Christ. It's very normal. It's very typical, this child's birth is. And to me, that really highlights the extraordinary nature of what's going on, because it is just so typical. Let me just just play this out in your mind a little bit. You're the king of the universe. You're the Messiah. You're God incarnate. How would you make your entrance? All options open. Blank check. How would you choose to enter the world? And that's what's so extraordinary about this, is he didn't consider the privilege. Christ didn't consider, the Lord didn't consider the privilege that they had as a way to enter the world with incredible pomp and circumstance. It's very normal 
But then it's also extraordinary because we have angels coming to make this announcement. And so we're bouncing back and forth between this normalcy and this extraordinary event. So let's get into it. We're going to see three points as we walk through this, and we'll tease these out a little bit. We'll spend most of our time on number one, and then a little bit of time on number two, and then just a touch on number three. It's what in preaching we call the law of diminishing points. This means we'll have less to say because I will have less time to say it. That's a prophecy. All right, let's continue on. The Messiah is born. Let's read verses one through seven. Luke chapter two, I'll read verses one through seven. We'll take it section at a time this morning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The Messiah is born. I know this is a familiar passage, and it's familiar because we typically look at this around the Christmas season. And as we were looking at the Gospel of Luke, I thought it may be strange, actually, to walk through some of these texts and it not be Christmassy. There's no Christmas trees and the garland and the wars over whether you're supposed to have white lights or colored lights and what civilized people do in their homes and with their Christmas trees, you know. We're not in the context of that, and I think that actually could be helpful for us. Lincoln Duncan, uh, a writer, theologian, said this, uh, pastor as well, uh, one of the real delights in studying this passage outside the Christmas time context is that perhaps it's overly, this overly familiar text can get through to us in ways that it might not when our hearts are filled with sentiment of the season. <laughs> and I think that's right. Uh, we come to this text maybe without the sentiment of the season. What I want to do this morning is partly I want to try to separate out what's Christmas lore or Christmas folktale that just gets passed down generation to generation to generation and reality from the Bible. And so I just want to confess to you this morning, I'm not here to try to ruin Christmas for anybody, all right? I'm not, I'm not here for that purpose, but I might do that. Um, so just want to confess early on, that's not my goal but some of these stories are, and some of these details are just enshrined into the way that we tell the stories, into movies, into art, into Christmas songs, and we can just have ideas in our mind, and there can be this confusion about what's actually in the Bible and then what is in a song or a movie or a play or some story. So, let's play a little game. Let's see if you have been influenced by Christmas lore as opposed to and instead of the Bible. I want you to answer a question. These are true, false. Don't answer them out loud. And the answer to all of these are false. All right. <laughs> Just trying to like trying to short circuit any potential embarrassment that we have here this morning. <clears throat> all right. So the answers are all false. Number one, true or false? The Bible says there were three kings. Doesn't actually say that. There's a song about it, but it doesn't actually say that. There's three different types of gifts that are brought. Does say that. Number two, 
animals were around when Jesus was born? Again, the answer is false. There is no mention explicitly of animals. We'll get where that comes from in our text here this morning. Number three, an innkeeper rejected Joseph and Mary. There's no mention of an innkeeper. This poor, much maligned innkeeper. We have a devotional, a little Advent devotional book at our house. It's very good. And there's a whole chapter on the people that miss Christmas, and one of them is this innkeeper. This poor innkeeper, he did nothing. He wasn't even there. What did he do? Another one, true or false, Mary rode to Bethlehem on a donkey. There's no mention, actually, of a donkey. She could have. Again, our question is, does the Bible say this? And the Bible doesn't actually explicitly tell us that. doesn't mean it's impossible. You guys probably noticed in at the Christmas season, we have a series of background slides, uh, a little package that we, that we got um, of slides that are just helpful artwork uh, for the Christmas season. Well, one of those slides that actually came in the package was, uh, it's, a, it's a really cool, like, artsy image, and it's uh, Mary riding in on a donkey um, to Bethlehem. It's this silhouette, and again, really cool artistry, and perhaps, we don't know for sure, um, but that's not actually there. So again, not trying to ruin anything, but I just want us Let's just look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say. And again, we're outside of the sentiment of the season, so let's just come with objective eyes and see what the Bible actually has to say. So what does it say about the Messiah being born? Let's see it. There's a few things here that I think are significant to point out. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, we're not going to take too much time here to get into the details and the timeline. The simple point I want to make, and for those who are really interested in deep dives into history and things like this, I just want to point out that there actually is a history to dive into. The Bible is historical. This is not some made-up fable or tale. And Luke is writing in such a way that he's asking you to cross-check him. This is when this happened. These are the events. This is who was in power at the time. So go check it out. The Bible functions that way. And so we learn that Caesar Augustus, as Luke calls him, he's using the term Augustus. Augustus actually isn't a name. It's a title. It's a moniker that he would go by, he would eventually be called Augustus, the majestic one. We get our word August from that, which uh, is different from the word August. That's a month. August is a little bit different. He's a significant character because he was the one who kicked off a period of time called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which is counted from around 27 BC, before Christ, um, to about 180. So about 200 years plus a little bit of incredible prosperity for Rome. The Roman Empire is clicking along. But part of the reason why this Roman peace was so successful is because emperors like this guy eliminated enemies. It's easy to have peace when you eliminate all opposition and when you hold all the cards and all the power. And so this is the guy who calls for a census, which leads us to our next observation here. God uses worldly rulers to accomplish his plan. Now, why is it important that Luke notes who's in power, and then he also notes that he called a census? 
Well, because the census causes Mary and Joseph to go on a trip. Where was this trip? Verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, all right? So everybody had to go, and this is a census that was being taken. It wasn't an account for military service. The Jews were actually exempted from that under the Roman rule. It was account for taxes, so you got to pay your taxes. This is not exactly a new issue that people are dealing with. It's always been around. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, so I won't talk about that too much more, but Luke is very intentional to use this vocabulary, which taps us back into 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord said, I'm going to build a house and a lineage for David. And so he's very intentional to tap us back into that kind of vocabulary. This uh, genealogies, some of y'all love genealogies. I know, you know, that, that tends to be um, just a practice that some people really, really enjoy. And I know with all the new search engines and tools and, you know, ancestry.com and whatever else, uh, some of you just love like figuring out like who's the first of this and that and where do we come from? I, it's not really my thing, but I'm very happy for you. I, I love that you love that. I'm glad somebody knows those things because I think it's good that somebody knows those things. But as far as am I interested in who my, the name and what my great, great, great grandmother's aunt and what they ate for breakfast, I, you know, just not part of my life. But genealogies in the Old Testament in particular, very important, very important because they were waiting on someone, a Messiah, and he had to come from a specific place. And so what Luke is doing is he's tapping us into that. He's going to be one who's coming from the lineage of David, and he's going to be one who's coming from a little town, a little unlikely place called Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Now remember, how did he get to Bethlehem? Why are they in Bethlehem? Because these rulers, these Roman rulers had called this really inconvenient census to be taken. And what does that do? Well, it puts Mary and Joseph in the place where the Messiah must be born. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So there's this prophecy sitting there about Bethlehem. We got to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. How are we going to do that? God's going to use a Roman ruler to call a census in order to get them to move in the series of months when they needed to be there so that Jesus was born. God's always at work. We see his sovereignty written all over this. In fact, I mentioned this in the Christmas season, but if you weren't with us, there's really three different references to geography and Christ. One, we're told he would be called a Nazarene, which they end up in the region of Galilee. Two, he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And then later on, we'll see this in a little bit, he's going to be called out of Egypt. Well, it's trouble and difficult situations that send them to all three of those places. And depending on who, is, who you're talking to, even, you might say you're from different places, right? Uh, it's not that you're not telling the truth. It's just, I've lived in a few different places, lived in Alabama, in 
couple of different cities in Alabama, lived in Los Angeles, back to Alabama, now live in Jacksonville. And depending on who you're talking to, you might, you know, reference that. And so Jesus was, had a connection point, his heritage, his lineage in all three of these places. And the Lord is working all that out. All right, the Messiah is born. Let's go back to the text here, verse 5. This was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, the significance here is that Luke says they are still betrothed. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, this is somewhere between being married and being engaged. In order to break a betrothal, you had to actually get a divorce, which we would consider that, well, then you were married. Well, they weren't quite married. And so it was a, it was a contract, really, that had to be broken. And so Luke is noting that because it's significant for preserving the idea in his teaching about the virgin birth. Matthew is a little bit more explicit in this when he talks about the visit that Gabriel had with Joseph. And he says, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. And so now we have the birth from the virgin um, and that is Mary. So let's talk a little bit more about this idea of Christmas lore and biblical fact. What can we pull out from these verses here? Number one, it's highly unlikely Mary gave birth the night that they arrived, all right? I think a lot of us have this idea that Mary was, they're just kind of storming into town like, we got to get somewhere, this baby's coming. Uh, kind of like the, the movie with the you know, taxi cab scene trying to get to the hospital. It's like, baby's coming now. Um, I don't think that was the situation at all because it says in verse 6, while they were there. So it's while they were there. They were there already. They didn't just come flying into town and start looking for some place to dump the baby. That's not how it went. I don't think that's uh, what they're saying at all. So while they were there, um, it could have been they had to go to the city within a period of time, perhaps up to a year, so that it wasn't like a day when you had to be there, like voting day for us is a day. It wasn't like that. It was just a, a period of time and you had to go register within that window. And so it's sometime between when Mary left visiting with her cousin Elizabeth and she stayed with her about three months. So it's sometime from there until, of course, the birth. And it's just highly unlikely that Joseph would have attempted to take his nine, almost 10-month pregnant wife, 40 weeks, on an 80, 90-mile journey with a 1,000-foot elevation gain, you know, if she's set to pop at any moment. Just very unlikely, the way that that went down. Number two, I mentioned this one already. We don't know that Mary rode a donkey to Bethlehem. They would probably travel in groups, so it is possible, but we don't know that for sure. Number three, Jesus is her firstborn, not her lastborn. Her firstborn, but not her lastborn. The firstborn is significant. They're considered property of the Lord, Exodus 13, 2. And they were at the top of the line for inheritance, Deuteronomy 21. But we also know that other kids come along a little bit later. And there's no reason to think, as in the Catholic Church, it is taught that there's the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. We don't think that is true. There's no reason to say that. Luke 8, 19, when Jesus is teaching, this is later, we'll get to this, then his mother and his brothers came to him. 
and they could not reach him because of the crowd. So his mother and his brothers, plural. Matthew 13, 55 and 56. This is after Jesus has shocked them all with his teaching. He says, is this not the carpenter's son? Again, he seems very normal to them. What in the world? Is not his mother called Mary? We know his mom. We know his dad. And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? He had a big family. And are not all his sisters with us? Where, where then did this man get all these things? So he has sisters, plural, and then he has these four brothers that are named and mentioned. So it's Mary's firstborn. Does it say it's her lastborn? Next, swaddling cloths are not a sign of poverty. Swaddling cloths are not a sign of poverty. Now, we do know Joseph and Mary are poor, but that's because of the next section, because of the offering they bring when we see the next section. We don't know that because of the swaddling cloths. This was common practice. I didn't really have a clue about swaddling, this whole idea of swaddling and babies. Some of y'all are smiling already because you know I don't have a clue. I didn't really know a lot about babies in general until we had a baby. And although I grew up with younger siblings, I think my parents were wise enough not to let me like manage much of that <laughs> wisdom of them. But then we get married and my wife, uh, some of you would know this, some of you may not, uh, my wife was a nurse. Um, uh, she's an RN and she worked in the NICU, uh, the neonatal intensive care unit. And so it became rather obvious kind of early on who was going to take care of the baby when we had a baby. We come back and she came into this situation. She's probably changed thousands of diapers um, as we had our firstborn. And my advice to new dads sometimes is just put the first one on backwards, put the first diaper on backwards. Like you'll get out of that duty for a while. <clears throat> That's terrible advice. Don't do that. The sleeping routine was fun to watch because Mindy had done this, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. And they had this little wrap, they called it the, the burrito wrap, where they wrap the babies up and, and they feel so secure. They take the blanket and she did this little thing with the arm. And I mean, this kid, they were like, you're not getting out. You have to be Houdini, you know, to get your arms to move. And I, I could never do it. Um, I just could never get it quite right. But it was, it was really cool um, and, and fun to watch. Well, it was kind of interesting to learn that this isn't a new practice, like they, they were doing this long, long, long time ago. In fact, the significance of the swaddling cloths is not to let us know that Jesus came from a poor family. It's to let us know he was a very normal baby. He's very normal. And that's why when the shepherds are told, look for a baby in swaddling cloths, like, well, they all are. <laughs> I mean, that's just what you do. Uh, there's nothing, it's just routine, care. Ezekiel Right, and this is many years before, hundreds of years before. He wrote in 16.4, Ezekiel 16.4, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, he's talking to Israel, he's using this metaphorically. He says, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. All right, so here's your starter manual for Ancient Baby 101. What do you do? You cut the cord, you wash them, you rub them with salt, and you swaddle them. That's how you did it. And so what we see with Jesus is a very, very normal experience. And again, our title today is the extraordinary 
nature of this, that it is just completely ordinary, that Jesus is experiencing humanity just like we are. It's amazing. Fifthly, the swaddling cloths are not a sign of poverty. Number five, the birthplace probably wasn't a cave or a separate stable. Now, I know this is where it might get to ruining Christmas for some. There's an, uh, an understanding of this. This is another a translation that I think is accurate. In fact, um, those of you that are looking at an ESV Bible, uh, you'll probably notice where it says VN. This is right at the end of verse 7. You'll probably see a footnote. If you follow that footnote down, what does it say? A, or guest room. Um, that's the idea. So it probably wasn't a separate manger um, or, or an inn like that. So these, these two terms, um, there's a feeding trough because there was no place for them in the guest room. That's probably a more accurate translation. So how did this work and what's going on? There's actually another word for inn or a hostel, a hotel, something like that. And that's the word that's used later when they tell the story of the Good Samaritan. When the Good Samaritan, he leaves the man at the inn, the hostel, the hotel, there's a different word, a different Greek word altogether for that. So I'm going to leave him there. And so what is going on here? Why is the baby in a feeding trough? And why does he tell us there's no room in the guest room? Ancient Hebrew houses probably looked something like this. They didn't have the clear distinction between inside, outside that you might have in your mind when you come to thinking about this. So the, bottom, the upper level was where you lived, and then there was a, typically a guest room. There, there was a room where you would have and you would show hospitality. It would really be almost unthinkable that in this time, with Joseph coming to a place where he had family, for, him to, for them to say, sorry, bud, we're full, head out to the, uh, you, you can find a barn down the road or something. That's really, 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 in Middle Eastern culture, very unlikely. To this day, the Middle Eastern people are incredibly hospitable, and that cultural, that cultural thing has lasted forever and ever. I think this is, this is true. Um, if I went back to, my family has got a little bit of a touch of this kind of thinking in us. If I went back to Mobile, and, and I went back to visit family and just said, I'm going to get a hotel that wouldn't go over, all right, in my family. I don't know about your family, but my family, you might appreciate that yourself, but that wouldn't go over. You, no, 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 we're family. Everybody's here. We're in it to win it together, and for however long that is. And so the Middle Eastern culture was very much that way. So Joseph and Mary show up, and it's just unthinkable that they would, they would just kind of get pushed out to a different place. And so this is probably more accurate what's going on. So there's this upper level, just sort of the living area, and probably had a guest there that maybe outranked them in the hierarchy of the system. And so they're probably downstairs in a, in an, in a relative's house, something like this. And they would bring the animals. Some of the animals would come in at night to this lower level uh, for protection, you know, from predators or from thieves that would roam around at night. And so this is most likely what's going on. Um, so there could have been cattle lowing about um, in, the, in the, the scene there, but we're not told that explicitly, but this is probably more what the situation was like. So it's not 
the birth of Christ, it's really not about the mean innkeeper. It's really not about the lowing cattle. What this is all about is Jesus Christ taking on human flesh in an extraordinarily ordinary type of way. He comes and he experiences humanity for us. We know Hebrews draws on this, his full humanity. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness because he bore humanity. He was fully, truly, completely human. It's an absolutely amazing reality. I want to fast forward. I think what we'll do is hold the rest of this for next week, talking about the glory and the shepherds. But I will just mention the shepherds at the end. So let's go to verse 15. And then we'll come back. We'll pick it up in verse 8 next week. Because I want to talk, I want to take some time and talk about the glory of God appearing and the significance of that. So the glory shows up, and then verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So we'll explore this more next week, but I just want to ask a simple question. Why were the shepherds even a part of this story? Why are they even a part of this story? The glory of God comes back. Glory hasn't been in Israel for years, hundreds of years. The glory comes back and he comes to shepherds. The glory doesn't show up at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting It doesn't show up at the seminary. It doesn't show up at the temple. It shows up the glory of God out there to these shepherds. They don't really do anything for the story as far as advancing. There's no prophecy necessarily fulfilled. So what's the point? The point's a precursor to what I think Luke is going to do again and again and again in the gospel of Luke. And that is show us the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. You see, we have a ruler who's issuing an edict, and we have the true ruler of the world, the true prince of peace that's being born under Roman rule. It's an upside-down kingdom. We have the glory of God appearing to those who seem very lowly. The majesty of the angels contrasted with the lowliness of the shepherds. These shepherds, why are they there? They're there to show that God is gracious to the lowly. He shows himself to the lowly. And it's great news for us. I can attest to what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1, when he's talking about the Corinthian people, not many were wise, not many were noble. You weren't the elites, you were just the normal people. And yet God has made himself known to you, the treasure in earthen, earthly vessels, the extraordinary upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. We'll go straight to a few concluding thoughts here. One is this. Don't forget Jesus' humanity. Truly, fully human. I think sometimes we can jump so fast to his deity that he was truly, fully God. 
I fully affirm that and believe that. But don't forget his humanity as well. He experienced humanity just like we do. Number two, don't forget God's sovereignty. He's using Roman rulers and decrees that seem completely unreasonable and inconvenient, and he's doing it to accomplish his purposes. I don't know what kind of situation you're in, but sometimes, I was actually talking to someone just before the service. They were talking about various trials that they've been through over the last last couple of years and how in retrospect you can look back and you can see the Lord's hand in that. You can't always see it at the time and you can't always see it in retrospect even, but sometimes the Lord does allow you to see those glimpses and see why he placed you in those positions. Don't forget his sovereignty. And then lastly, don't forget to worship. This is the reaction of the angels uh, after the angels visit these guys. They are so overjoyed that they get to be a part of the story. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning, and it's good for us to be reminded of the gospel and be reminded of the humanity of Christ. Let's also don't forget why he came. Jesus came as an answer for sin. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. That's why, ultimately, he came to be an answer, to be a propitiation, the Bible says, a stand-in for our sins. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to look at your word and just to see the wonder of the birth of Christ. And we see the extraordinary that comes through the ordinary. It's so normal. It was just a baby going through the normal process, being cared for like a normal child in a very average, ordinary sort of place. And yet there's the ruler of the world. There's the true prince of peace. It's not the Pax Romana. It's not the decrees coming down from imperial powers. It's the true one, the true king that's there allowing himself to be subjected even to his own creation. What an amazing reality this is. Lord, I don't know how this intersects with various ones who are in here this morning, but I do pray that you would remind us of your sovereignty, remind us to be constantly in worship of you. Lord, remind us of who you are and your character and that all of our days are planned even before we've lived any of them. If there's one in here maybe that doesn't, isn't convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, I pray that you would use your word, the historicity of it, the reality of it, and you would show them their need for Christ even today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.